Now we're going to skip the next couple of chapters because he just keeps going on and talking about the sins of the people and what sins they specifically committed. In chapter 3, he begins to talk about the wives and the daughters of Jerusalem's wealthy who would not be protected by the coming judgment. These women became wealthy with their husbands. And notice how God is making it very clear. It's not just, we have this idea that men are evil and women and children are innocent. And that did not exist in the ancient world. That's a relatively new post-industrial revolution thing. And if you've ever read Nancy Percy's Total Truth, she talks about where that began to happen. But pre that, we didn't really have an understanding that women were somehow more innocent. And so what God is making it very clear is like, I'm taking everyone, the women, the, the, the children. And if, if you've ever like watched Little House on the Prairie, Okay, my girls love the show, and like I hate it when I was a kid. I was like, "Oh, that's this girl show does that." So then we started watching it together as a family. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is a really good show." It's like it deals with like real life issues, and like it's created a lot of great conversations as a family as we talked about, like in some really depressing episodes and stuff that really make you do things. But there's a family called the Olsons. And the, the, that, the husband, oh, I just, we, the last episode, we, they went on a camping trip, and my heart just broke. That was like the first time I was just like, you need to get away, man. You need to get away. So, um, and I don't mean like divorce forever, but like just away. Like take a, go on a sabbatical somewhere, breathe. But she is a horrible woman. And her children are beginning to become like that as well. And there's this episode with a house that was haunted, and it was like, oh, my gosh, I just wanted to strangle that little girl. So, um, <laughs> but, I mean, we pause a lot and talk, like, is that good? Da, 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 da. But that's the idea. And that's just a TV show. We're not talking about, we're not even talking about the people acting like the Canaanites. We're not even talking about child sacrifice. We're not even talking about all that stuff. And, and, and what he's saying is you're not innocent. Your gender doesn't make you innocent. Your obedience and your repentance is what makes you innocent. And that's what God is focusing on here as he, he, he hits them all. He hits them all. And then he connects them to a branch. And he uses this branch as the symbol of Israel, of whether it's producing fruit or not. And the idea is it's not producing fruit. And he develops that theme as he goes. And you have to understand, as we go through the prophets... The trees and branches are going to be used a lot as the imagery of Israel and God's chosen people. So that brings us to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a famous passage. We're going to deal with some very popular passages that get quoted at Christmas and that kind of stuff. And we're going to kind of unpack them and talk about them a little bit. But in chapter 6, even though we've already seen six, five chapters of Isaiah preaching and giving his message, chapter 6 is where he was officially called. So this is obviously out of chronological order. Chapter 6 technically happened before any of the other chapters that we've read because this is Isaiah's commission to become prophet and go to the people. But what's also interesting is this is the most detailed image of God's throne that we've ever seen in the Bible so far. We have been introduced to the presence of Yahweh, when the Shekinah glory of God or the pillar of fire came to them in Egypt and led them out and has been resting on the tabernacle. But that was just a pillar of fire. That's it. We've never seen into the fire to see what's truly there. And we've seen a glimpse of God when his fire came down on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and all that kind of stuff. But once again, 
Moses went up under the mountain and he spoke to God, but no description of God has ever been given in that. Isaiah chapter 6 is the first. It's not going to be like an incredible amount of detail, but we're going to get more detail than we've ever had of this image of God sitting on the throne. And then the next one we're going to get is going to be Ezekiel chapter 1. And then Daniel is going to allude back to Ezekiel 1. And then when we get to Revelation 4, it's going to allude back to Ezekiel chapter 1. And that's really kind of the only imageries of God on his throne. God sitting on his throne is talked about. The divine council is referenced. The pillar of fire appears lots of times in the Bible. But the actual description of God sitting on his throne is pretty unique. This is the imagery that he gets. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the sovereign master seated on a high elevated throne. Now, obviously, this is Yahweh because it's a sovereign master. And sovereign means the highest authority that there is. And Yahweh would call no other person than that. The hem of his robe filled the temple. The only time we see hymns of robes, usually, is you watch like movies where kings are being coronated and their robe is dragging on the ground behind them. Or if you're turning, tuning into England's royal wedding and the wedding dresses are very long. And the point of a hymn that's really long on a robe of a king or a woman who's getting married is that the longer it is, the more glorious they are. The more power they have, the better they are than you, the higher their authority there is. The, the, the more glorious they are. And so what he does is he describes Yahweh sitting on this throne. Now, every Jew, everybody in the ancient world would have this idea of the earth, and they knew the earth was round, and they had this idea of the earth, and they believed that the gods put their temples or thrones on top of the sky, and they sat there. And so they didn't have this idea that the gods were in another dimension like we might, a heaven thing, or that they were in outer space like the Russians thought when they got up in outer space and said, I don't see God. So, And I know they didn't probably literally mean that, but I don't know. And so, But they did have this idea that they were sitting on top of the sky, and they had no concept of outer space yet because you only know that with telescopes and spaceships. And so God sits up there. And this is why even Isaiah will later say that Yahweh sits on the circumference of the earth and all men are like grasshoppers to him. And so his throne is there. And the idea was that God sat on his throne on his cosmic mountain. So the mountains go up and they hold the sky up because that just makes sense, right? The mountains go up to the sky, so they're holding the sky up. And on top of one of these mountains, Yahweh is sitting there just like on top of Zaphon, Baal is sitting on top of his cosmic mountains, and Olympus, Zeus is sitting there. And he's sitting there, and where most of the gods are up on the mountain, and they never come down unless they want to mess with you, and you're never allowed to come up unless they want to kill you and torment you, Yahweh is portrayed as different. He's usually portrayed as sitting on the mountain, and the Shekinah glory of God that is sitting on top of the tabernacle is like his legs, and they're coming down to earth. And the Ark of the Covenant is like his footstool. And so he sits his feet on the footstool, and he sits on top of the sky so that his temple is the entire earth. It's not just a temple on top of the sky, on top of a mountain, is the entire earth. In the garden, we would have been walking with him fully face to face. But since the fall, all we can come to is his feet, his legs. That's all we're allowed to come into. Until Christ comes along, the book of Hebrews says that Christ has gone before us 
and entered through the heavenly veil, which is the sky, and opened up the curtains, and he's now our anchor pulling us in. And the anchor imagery there is not like anchor keep you from moving, but it's when there's no wind, you throw the anchor ahead of you, it slams into the ground below the ocean, and then you pull yourself in. And so Christ is pulling us into heaven because he's gone through the heavenly veils so that we can actually go boldly and confidently to the throne of God and see his face instead of just seeing his legs like the Jews did. That's important to understand because when Isaiah describes his temple, he's talking about the whole earth. And when he says his him filled the entire temple, he's saying that, the, that Yahweh is all-powerful and that his glory fills everything. And there's nothing in creation that does not have God's sovereignty, authority, ruling power ruling over it. And we talked about this a little bit with Jonah when they're like, what God do you serve? And Joe's like, I serve the God of the sky, the land and the sea. And they're like, oh my gosh, like we've never met a God like that. And that's the same kind of word that is being used here. Isaiah just uses it in a different way. And then he sees these seraphs. We have no idea what seraphs are. But the word seraph, we think, comes from a word meaning the fiery ones. And that they might be on fire. And that makes sense because when we're introduced to the cherubim, and Ezekiel, they're on fire, and every time we see God, he's on fire. So it makes sense that the seraphs are on fire. So these these fiery ones, and they stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they're covering their feet, meaning that they're not worthy to come into the presence of God. With two, they're, they're covering their face, meaning they're not worthy to look upon the presence of God. And with two, they're flying. Then they say, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh who commands the armies, His glory fills all of the earth. And they just kept saying this to each other back and forth. Now, a lot of people have seen the Trinity in this holy, 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 um, but that's not really accurate. Remember, the Trinity is not revealed yet, and you can't just look back and, and reinterpret the First Testament based on the Second. What's really going on here is, in the Hebrew, there is no word for very or surely or extraordinary. There's no word to emphasize something. And so oftentimes they would just repeat the word. So like when you're reading Genesis chapter 2 and God is speaking to Adam and Eve and he says, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew it says dying you will die. Because they don't have a word for surely or very. So they just repeat it. What they're doing here is they're repeating the holy. And by repeating it three times they're saying like he is very, very holy. That would be the equivalent of what we would do in English. And so he is the most holy thing that there is. Now remember the word holy, we talked about this in Leviticus, and the word holy means absolutely unique and unlike anything else. It doesn't necessarily mean righteous or moral, because it doesn't make sense that the angels were like, moral, moral, moral is God Almighty. Okay, And it doesn't mean separate, because that's often what we... Because it doesn't make sense that they're going separate, separate, separate as God. It's like, wow, that really makes us want to bow down and worship him. The word holy is unique. And so when God says, be holy because I am holy, he's saying, be unique. Don't be like the world. Be like me. Be unlike anything else. And so this is the same thing, because you can have a holy shovel in the tabernacle or a holy knife for sacrificing animals. And it's not a moral knife. And if it, like, accidentally stabs one you in the hand, you're like, bad knife. Okay, so the holy doesn't mean that. It's not separate. It's, it's unique. And the point is being un- used for unique purposes. And so we talked about this with Leviticus, but you and I cannot be holy. 
We cannot be holy in the way that God is holy. Only God can be holy. Only God is absolutely unique and unlike anything else in all creation. There's nothing you can compare him to. There's nothing you can say, hey, this is like God, or this person is like God, or whatever. You can't do that. There's nothing. He's unfathomable. He's indescribable. He's beyond our comprehension. And so he's unique and unlike anything else. But then he calls us to be holy, like he is holy. And then he says the knife and the tabernacle is holy, and this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. And what he means by that is he is holy ontologically in his essence and his nature. There's nothing like him. We can only be holy in the way that we're being used by him. If I am allowed, come to him in humble submission and I say, not my will be done, but your will be done, then he will take my life, he will take my music, he will take my art, he will take my my thinking, my logic, my mathematics, my doctor skills, my parenting skills, all this stuff, and he'll use them in a unique way that is unlike everybody else doing things. And he'll produce unique fruit that is unlike any fruit that other people are producing. And this fruit will have eternal kingdom-building ramifications. And so that's how we become holy. We allow ourselves to be used by him to be used in a unique way that is unlike the way that everybody else in the world is doing it. And so when he brought them to Mount Sinai, he says, though the whole world belongs to me, you will be my special possession. You will be my holy nation. I'm going to use you in a way that is unlike any other nation. And this is why one of the most offensive things you could probably say is, but mom, everybody is doing it. Because the minute you say everybody is doing it or they're going there, why can't I? Or we want a king like all of the other nations. You're basically saying, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be unique. I don't want to be different and unlike anybody else. I want my life to be normal and I want it to be like everybody else in every kind of way. Because that seems more fun. They're saying God is different. Now that's important because at the sound of their voice, it makes... All the earth shake. And I've always imagined, like, if the voice of a seraph could make the earth rattle, imagine what the voice of God would do when it's really given its power. And then then the earth was filled with smoke. And the idea of the smoke here is judgment day. It's that God's coming down to the earth. And we saw this in Micah when he comes down the earth and the mountains begin to melt under his glory. And I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. My lips are contaminated by sin, and I live among a people whose lips are contaminated by sin. My eyes have seen the king, Yahweh, who commands the armies. So Isaiah sees this, he's like, I'm so screwed. The word woe is like the deepest expression of mourning and grief that you can come up with. It's the word that is used when your family members are dead and you're at a funeral. It's the word that is used that God is angry and he's going to destroy me in judgment. And so Isaiah is here and he's like, I'm ruined. The same word that is used of the ruined cities and the judgment of God. And he says, woe is me, this is my funeral, for I'm going to die because I just saw God. And no one sees him and lives. And he says, because I'm a sinner who lives among sinners. But what's interesting here is that God purifies them. He puts Isaiah through the fire, just like he said he was going to do with the ruined city, so that he could remove the dross and produce the faithful city. 
And so one of the seraphs reaches into the altar, not the altar of the tabernacle, but the altar that is in heaven, and grabs the fire and he touches it to his lips. And he says, your evil has been removed, your sin has been atoned for or forgiven. Now remember, if you're going to go through the fire of God, knowing the fire of God completely consumes you and destroys you. But the only way you can come out on the other side of the fire of God and live is if you are what? Repentant. You're humble. So the only reason Isaiah is able to survive this is because he's a man of faith. He's a man of humbleness. I mean, he, you saw his repentance right here. Like, I'm with you, God, but I know I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy. And he humbles himself. And so it purifies him. Now, his whole body, his whole being, his whole essence wasn't put through the fire because he never would have survived that. Not without the blood of Jesus Christ. And that has not come yet. So all that God can cleanse is his lips. But why his lips of all things? He's a prophet. And he's going to speak the words and the will of God to the people. And God is cleansing the thing that he's going to use in a holy and unique way. This is Isaiah saying, I want to be holy like you are. And God who is holy of the universe is cleansing Isaiah's mouth. And he says, I'm going to use your mouth and your words in a way that is absolutely unique compared to all other people who live. All other people live, other than the other prophets and that kind of stuff. But they're still unique because they're being used by God. And so you're going to go out. Then, remember, this is the divine council. He's been brought up in the divine council. And he's been called to be, he's been cleansed to be a prophet. And so he's sitting there, and Yahweh then turns to his council, and he's got an idea. And he says, I heard the voice of the sovereign master say, Whom shall I send? Who will go on our behalf? So God says, I'm looking for volunteers. And Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. I'm going to be used by God in a holy, unique way. This is going to be cool and amazing. And God says, Go and tell these people, Listen continuously, but you will not understand. Look and see continuously, but you will not perceive. Make the hearts of these people callous. Make their ears deaf and their eyes blind. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Their hearts must, might understand that they might repent and be healed. Isaiah, go and preach a message that nobody will respond to and nobody will repent to. How long should I do this, sovereign master, until their cities are in ruin and unpopulated and the houses are uninhabited and the land is ruined devastated? Till they're all dead. Yay, prophet. <laughs> you can start seeing a lot. Hosea, now Isaiah, others are coming. Wow. Isaiah, I want you to spend the rest of your life being used by me to preach a message that nobody will ever listen to, nobody will repent to, and they're all just going to die. And then you're going to die. You're like, why would anybody sign up for that? Why would anybody? I mean, even as a man of God, I would be thinking like, really? Even Jeremiah at times was like, I quit God. Like, I know you told me this, but I thought maybe you might be wrong. I mean, he doesn't say this, but I imagine he's probably thinking this because he's like, I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. Elijah quit. We saw that. He's like, after all this and they're still trying to kill me, I quit. This is a very common thing among prophets. They often want to quit and they often want to die because it's pretty hopeless. But here's the powerful point. You don't see it now, 
But when we get to Peter, and Peter's looking back, and Peter's describing our salvation, and he's describing what it currently is and how God is using suffering to refine us into godly character, and then he looks at what it will be one day in the future will be refined, like gold and all that kind of stuff, and get an inheritance in heaven. Then he says, hey, but where have we come from? And he looks back, and going into chapter 2, and he says, the prophets longed. They looked into their preaching and their message, and they longed to figure out the nature of who Christ was and when he was coming. They wanted to know what it is. They're preaching, and nobody's understanding, and they don't even fully understand what they're saying half the time. And so they longed. And they did not understand, but they preached the message faithfully despite that for us. That Isaiah knew that even though this ruined city generation may not respond to his message, the future faithful purified city would listen to his message and respond. And this is what's so amazing. He is living a ministry that he knows will produce fruit, but he will never see it in his lifetime. He will never see it in his lifetime. I remember there's a man by the name of um, Al Eiton at our school who's a teacher. He's been there for a long time. And I remember getting a little depressed, like I don't feel like anything I'm doing actually matters and that kind of stuff. And he, he made an interesting thing. He says, we're not in the business of raising flowers. We're in the business of raising sequoia trees. Flowers grow up quickly but then they're easily cut down. Sequoia trees grow up slowly, and we won't see these things fully grown until oftentimes they're adults, and they might come back and visit. And so he's saying, you may not see the fruit of everything you're investing in, but eventually there will be fruit, because this is just how God works. And I've learned that over the years that God most of the time works through processes, not events. Kind of like raising your children. It begins with a wondrous event, but it leads to a long process of development. And that's what Isaiah's thinking. Okay? And I don't know if it's right here in this moment or it's going to take years of him contemplating and meditating on his ministry, but Peter tells us eventually Isaiah came to the point where he realized that the fruit will be there one day. I just won't see it. And that's, the, that's amazing. This guy was faithful when he saw no fruit. Because he trusts to God that there would be fruit one day. And the question is, do we have that same thing? And that's exactly what Peter goes on to. He says, there's your example now. And now you have Christ. And he's living in you. And you have a fuller understanding and a greater gift of salvation than they ever did. So you should be able to do the same thing, if not more. That's what we've been called to. That kind of a ministry. And so he preaches this. Verse 12, And Yahweh has sent the people off to a distant place, and the very heart of the land is completely abandoned. Even if only a tenth of the people remain in the land, it will again be destroyed. And the like the one large sacred trees of the Asherah pole, when a sacred pillar on a high place is thrown down, that sacred pillar symbolizes the special chosen family. Now, a lot of your translations might say there's a stump. And out of the stump, there will be a new shoot. But that's a misunderstanding based on the old school understanding. But now with recent words that we've discovered in archaeological diggings and that kind of stuff, we know that the word shouldn't be stump, but a sacred pillar. 
And the point is not a shoot is going to rise out of the stump, but that a this is the chosen family. So it's not a stump is cut down and out of the stump is a chosen shoot. It's the sacred pillar is torn down and that sacred pillar is the chosen family. Now what's the difference? If you see it as a stump that is cut down and a shoot growing out, it's very easy to think that's a promise of restoration and hope one day. And that many people have interpreted that as the Davidic line. But he's not saying that. The context doesn't fit that. Nowhere has he given hope in this chapter right now. This chapter is like, they're not going to listen. They're not going to understand. They're not going to come to you. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to ruin everything. It doesn't make sense. It's all but a little shoot. Now, there's oftentimes that God does move from judgment to a promise of restoration, but he usually unpacks it in multiple verses. He doesn't just give like one little sentence and move on. That's not typically the way he operates. So what the idea is, notice the context is this. In verse 13, it says, Even the tenth of the people remain in the land. Again, it will be destroyed like one of the sacred trees or the Asherah pole. These are monuments that they built to worship the gods. The pillar on the high place is thrown down, that sacred pillar. So if you're looking at synonymous parallelism here, it actually makes sense that we're not talking about an Asherah tree being torn down and a stump and parallel being cut down, a new shoot coming up, it makes more sense an Asher tree is being cut down and a sacred pillar is being torn down, period. So these are their sacred pillars, their monuments that they built of their gods. So he's saying, I'm tearing down your sacred trees that you worship to your gods and your sacred stones that you worship to the gods. And all by the way, the sacred stone is also the chosen family. It's the line of David. I'm going to destroy it. Now the hope is not here. The hope isn't going to come until later. Now, I know that doesn't change theology drastically, but it's just important to stick with the context. Because where we're going next is a completely different time period. 